you're ready to stop submitting basic applications and winging your interview for your next nursing role, whether you're a graduate nurse or a seasoned healthcare professional, we'd love to exclusively invite you to our secret nurse growth hub, where you can get all of the support to apply, interview and land your next nursing role completely free. All of the resources that we've shared and created over the last three years that have helped 3,000 plus nurses internationally apply, interview and land their next nursing role. So what are you waiting for? Come and join us today. It's completely free. LiamCaswell.com forward slash NGH. Come and join the Nurse Growth Hub today and let's make applying, interviewing and landing your next nursing role easy. to the High Performance Nursing Podcast, where we seek to coach, educate, and inspire nurses globally to achieve their high performance potential. Learn from influential clinicians having curious conversations to help you navigate your unique high performance nursing career path. Join me, your host, Liam Caswell, nursepreneur, coach, and mentor, as we explore how you can create a balanced, high performance nursing career. Let's do this. Hello and welcome to this episode of High Performance Nursing. Today we are in for a treat as we always are, but we've got the beautiful and amazing, talented Dunya here with us today. Dunya is a clinical manager with a social work background. Hello Dunya, how are you? Hi Liam, I'm good thanks. How are you? I'm great. I'm so excited that you're here. Me too. Um, Oh my goodness, I'm (laughs) so happy that you're here to share a different perspective for us because we haven't had a social worker or anybody from our allied health colleagues on the podcast yet. We've had a doctor, an emergency clinician, looking forward to the next 30 minutes to unpack what it is uh, you have to offer the high performance nursing community and what we can learn from our social work colleagues because I, for one, will dig into this but didn't know how much you guys really did in terms of roles because I think as a nurse you get caught up in your, your um, tunnel vision. Mm-hmm. of the role that you're doing so I'm, I'm hoping that there will be lots of great things that we talk about that people can learn from about the role of social work within an yeah. acute, subacute setting I'm excited about it I love talking about social work so super yeah. exciting Can't wait. <laughs> so let's kick off with if you're happy to tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you do and how you've kind of got to this point in your career mm-hmm. so I became a social worker kind of by accident we had a the cutoff for uni applications and there were about four hours left before the cutoff when I was in year 12 and I was panicked because I had no idea what I was supposed to do with the rest of my life. And I called my friend, my best friend at the time and I was crying to her about this and I was like, I don't know what I want to do. Can you come and help me? So we looked through the UAC book, the, all of the different degrees you could do and she goes, you know what, you'd be a great social worker. So we applied for that. She's like, you'd be a great teacher, be a great lecturer, you'd be great at linguistics and anything that she thought was a strength of mine, she's like, just apply for those things. And I actually got into uh, arts, an arts degree, and started doing sociology, which I did not know anything about. And I turned up to Introduction to Sociology, and that's how I found out what sociology was. And I was like, this is fantastic. All these thoughts in my head about how our society works are now on these PowerPoint presentations, and people have done research for decades around this. I'm totally in the right place. But then I 
was hearing um, from a couple of people that actually it was a bit disappointing that I didn't get into social work and you get to help people. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. So I ended up doing what was like a double degree. Um, ANU was doing, I did the arts side for sociology with ANU, but the Catholic University in Canberra had um, the Bachelor of Social Work and they were actually partnered in providing this double degree together. So I went and just went to the admin office and changed my bachelor code and that way I got into a bachelor of arts and social work. And again, the following year, um, first unit of social work, introduction to social work, I've no idea what it is. And I learned on the day <laughs> that okay, I'm around people who want to do good things in society. So I'm in the right place. And as the placement, uh, sorry, as the, as the studies evolved and I did placements, I was like, ah, this is social work. I get it. So I'm very grateful to my friend who knew me very well and knew that this was going to be uh, suited to me. Otherwise, I could have had a few career changes by now. <laughs> she but sounds yeah. like a great friend. She, yeah, yeah. Oh, my goodness. I hope you're still best friends. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're good friends, yeah. So it's, it's kind of almost by accident. But when I talk about the, the qualities that align me with social work, and I often talk about social work being an extension of who I am as a person, and it kind of the studies and my practice, my last 10 years of practicing social work have kind of refined some, some qualities of my own that I'm, that I'm proud of and that I wanted to amplify. I, I kind of, I've worked across the lifespan. I got a job working with uh, children, uh, young people and their families. And it was a dual role as a clinical manager to vulnerable families in our community, but also then being a youth worker. So the week was split into different roles. So I kind of worked with a, a very different group of people one week and, and one half of the week and, and another demographic for the second half of the week. And that was really eye-opening. I think my first day on the job at the youth centre, there was a knock on the door before we opened and this 17-year-old girl knocked on the door and said, I think I'm pregnant. Can you help me uh, get an abortion? And I was like, oh I had my graduation ceremony last week. <laughs> I don't really know what I'm doing. What am I supposed to do? What is social work again? Like, I just forgot everything and, and panicked. But we kind of just took it one step at a time and supported her and supported her for a couple of years, actually. But then I was starting to figure out that I'm not just wanting to generally help people. There are particular demographics that I was really, really drawn to naturally. One of those demographics surprised me, which was mental health. So people who experience, uh, have experiences with mental illness and need some support around managing that. And I kept getting drawn to that. So I worked with the adult population, which was people between the ages of 18 um, onwards. And that was eye-opening. I worked with a lot of people who involuntarily receiving mental health treatment because they were a risk to themselves and or other people mm. and didn't have insight into their, into their health condition and what treatment they required. But then there was also this other demographic I kept being interested in and it was definitely another extension of who I am and that's working with older people. I was raised by my grandmothers. I lived in a house with a grandma, a great grandma, a great aunt, my parents and my siblings. So I always had older people around me. My mum worked in a nursing home for a very long time or a residential care facility. So all our after school weekends, school holidays were spent in residential um, care facilities. So older people were always such an important part of my life. And I just felt like all of a sudden they didn't belong in my week that I didn't have contact with older people and that didn't sit well with me. So then I decided to apply for a role with older people, which happened to be in a hospital setting. 
but that meant I lost the mental health component because this was general medicine. So again, I practiced, I loved it, but I had this niggling, oh, I'm missing out on mental health. And I am a huge believer that we don't have to choose in our life if we don't want to, that we can do all the things we want to do. Mm. And then the universe kind of makes you uncomfortable when she thinks you're ready to grow and change and step into greatness. So I was starting to get a bit uncomfortable in my role that I was in. And at the same time, uh, a position opened up with older people in a mental health setting. And I was like, wow, you are ticking my boxes. <laughs> and that is kind of where I am now. And I'm loving every part of it. I've been there for slightly less than a year, but I've just enjoyed every day. Even the hard days have been good days. And I could honestly tell you now, I could retire. I could work there to retirement. Wonderful. So it's been an interesting journey, starting with babies and teenagers and ending up here and just listening to what my heart really wanted to do. Mm. Mm. I absolutely love that story, like your, your career story, your life story. I, <laughs> I relate to so much of it. First and foremost, I also grew up in a lot of, I didn't know this about you because Dunya and I actually worked together mm-hmm. and I didn't know that you kind of grew up in those in residential aged care facilities and my mom actually worked in RASIFs as well. And we spent our before and after schools there. And likewise, <laughs> that was one of the, the fueling factors for me choosing to become a nurse, which is just really interesting that uh, similarity. Mm-hmm. What I'm hearing from you is this beautiful career of sampling mm-hmm. um and this idea that you can try you can try before you buy you can test the waters and you can just follow where your passion is kind of taking you like almost not even your passion because it sounds like you you went into child health and uh, you know and, and uh, or the children's aspect of social work and you loved it but then there was like a little curiosity like mm-hmm. tree branch growing that wanted you to take a different path and I think that we, I say the royal we and the invisible army we, and I shouldn't, but we do get caught up in that. Or oh, I should be here because I, I, I need to go to ICU because that's where I said I was going to go. Mm-hmm. Rather than just letting the journey happen naturally mm-hmm. and listening to yourself. And that's one of the things that I really valued in our relationship when we were working together was that I did, I found you very grounding and I found you very in tune with who you are. And <laughs> I, I, no, I, I really did, and it 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 brought up questions for me because I I questioned my own ability and and uh, whether or not I was actually living authentically mm-hmm. uh, as a leader, mm-hmm. as an individual, on the career path that I was on. Mm. And I think that maybe more of us need to have that internal dialogue mm. or do the work to get to that point where we actually have a better understanding of who we are so we can make better career decisions. Or like you say, the experiences just happen because the universe gives you a shakeup and says, Hey, it's time to move on. It's time to challenge yourself in a different, different way. Mm, absolutely. Um, and I think, I think uh, knowing who we are, that's, that's a really big responsibility, isn't it? To like learn who we are and follow what we want to do. And that's that in itself is pressure and it's really difficult and complicated to do that in one way but in another way it's quite simple do what you feel is right without Mm. hurting another person and i think unfortunately we learn these things through really challenging experiences and i'm not you know here to kind of i want to be real 
the reason that I was kind of sticking to what that little voice in my head was saying about this is your calling, this is your passion, was because I had such negative experiences as a young social worker. And by that, I mean a fledgling, a new to the mm. field social worker, because I had a tough time and I was challenged by people and, you know, I was bullied in the workplace, you know, oh, you're just like this smiley blonde girl who's tall with big boobs. Like, what would you know about, you know, this or that or policy or whatever? Mm. And it's like, wait a minute. I actually have lots of things to say and I think they're valid things. And it took me a few years to go, stop. I am really intelligent and I've gotten to the point where I'm not going to tell you that I am. I'm just going to do the work and you will see just how intelligent I am. And you will see that my hair or or my height have nothing to do with Mm. my social work practice. Mm. And, and I think that's, it got to a point where unfortunately through that experience or fortunately through some of these really challenging experiences, I realized that, helping people isn't enough for a while i i put up with well really put up with with a lot of negativity and mistreatment because i thought oh the the most important thing is you're in a profession that's helping people and you've got all these families with young children that you're helping and you've got these homeless people and you've got these teenagers who are completely devalued and you you are helping so it's fine so don't worry about what happens in the office or you know, in team meetings, you just worry about the patients because that's the right thing. So suck it up. It's not supposed to be easy. Mm. And it got to a point where I started to just cry in the car park every day. I'd park my car and cry because I was like exhausted and I didn't want to go into a place that was going to laugh at me or or ridicule me for my age or, or, or whatever. And then I realized I'm replaceable mm. and I'm not that important. And that was one of the most empowering realizations I had because I was like, this world and this organization is going to go on without me. Mm. So what I'm going to make sure is that, that I'm not broken at the end of it. So I have done the good work and I have supported families and I genuinely care about doing a good job with families. I genuinely care about being a good teammate. But at the end of the day, I had to put myself first and I had to be like, yep, you're replaceable, which means you're just going to go home on time. You're not going to stay back another two hours. And that means that you're going to get a better night's sleep. You're going to actually cook a meal and, and have something nice, come to work the next day and be better and be in a better headspace. We spend so much of our life at work, Liam, so much of our working week at work. Why, why make so much of our life miserable? So I decided that enough was enough and I wanted to go and care for people, but my job had to love me back. Mm. And hence why I was like, I will not stop listening to that inner voice and that passion because I know I can do good and I want to do good in an area that's going to do good to me as well, or do good for me as well. So being real is definitely become a part of my daily dialogue, not just in the workplace, but in my life too. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I think that, you know, you exude that, Dunya, you know, when I, when talking to you and and hearing your story and, and what you've gone through, and I think it's worthwhile noting to people listening that, you know, if you are going through a challenging time, that is where the growth lies. As much as it's like massively uncomfortable, those traumatic experiences, not that we want anybody to go through them, but if you are going through them, like, you know, buckle, like lean in, buckle up Mm. and take everything you can from those experiences as a learning opportunity so that you build your character and you develop a sense, a deeper sense of yourself. Mm. I think for me, it wasn't until I went through my first, second burnout, Mm. like yourself, where I went, and I still grapple with this. I still grapple with this, you know, 
I'm on a week off this week and I'm recording podcasts and doing yeah. you know, work-related stuff. And I just have got a problem where I can't shut off, but that's my own internal thing. But I'm acutely aware of it. And mm-hmm. it's something that I'm working on. But I think there is a massive proportion of the workforce that maybe don't have that insight across all disciplines. Absolutely. I mean, we're in giving professions. We give and we nurture and we care and we heal. So obviously a part of us goes out the door with every patient that leaves the hospital or the clinic or, or whatever. We know that that's the price to pay and that's the cost of us doing jobs that align with our values and that listen to our inner voice. We know that and we come back every day, day in, day out, year in, decade in, decade out. And that's not the issue. The, the issue is how we, how we refill our cup. And look, I will say that I agree with you in terms of a lot of our growth happens through challenge. But one thing I do want, I strongly believe in and strongly uh, recommend is don't do it alone. Mm. Do not like stuff what anyone else says about suffering in silence or get mm. on uh, mm-hmm. with the work. Never, ever do that. And uh, what I would say to my younger self in these situations, if I was in those situations again, I would have spoken up, you know, three, four years sooner than I had. Mm. And even now, if there is uh, an experience that's negative or devaluing or I think there's a difference between disagreeing with a colleague about treatment or a policy or interpretation of a policy or, or, sorry, I mean treatment uh, as in treatment plans for patient care. There's a difference between disagreeing and actually being disrespectful towards each other. Mm. They are very different. You can have a different professional opinions uh, around patient care, but how you treat your fellow colleague and your fellow health professional is is a in a, in a different it's a different thing. And so what I do now and have done for a few years is if I have an interaction where let's say uh, somebody will challenge me in front of the team to say mm, I don't really know if you know the the answer to that, I think you should ask a senior social worker in front of all your colleagues where you say to them, well, I am the senior social worker. I've dealt with this situation a number of times before. This is what the policy states. This is what the law states. Hence why we're following this step. Oh, darling, you should ask a a senior anyway. I record those things. I email myself and I will say, he said, she said, he said, she said. And then at the end, I will also say, here is how I felt. Here is how it made me feel. And this is the environment that it was in. Here is my reflection on it. And always at the end, here is how I can do better and what I can do differently. And I email that to myself so that I have a timestamp. And one reason for that is to be my own best friend, to make sure that I have heard myself, I've listened to what happened and I'm here for me. The other reason is that things do happen that require evidence of people's behaviour and for the purpose of making uh, culture and workplace environments better. And actually, you know, um, you, you probably remember this, but a year or two ago, HR did investigate a couple of staff members and lots of us people were asked to provide feedback. And those emails that I had were requested by HR and I provided them as evidence. And mm. the staff who were the... I guess the perpetrators of, of contributing to such negative workplace environments were supported. They were supported to, to practice in a way that aligns with their values more so they weren't so cranky and burnt out and mm, taking it out mm. on other staff. And it made them nicer to work with and, and provided, you know, more, more effective care overall. Mm. 
Mm. So I definitely think we grow through challenging experiences, but I don't think we need to suffer in silence while we do it. I think it's important to have a really uh, honest relationship with our egos as well. So when somebody gives us feedback, definitely when we've stuffed up and we know we've stuffed up and we don't want to hear it from someone, I think it's really important to go into, into the feedback discussion space with an open mind and, and with an ego that is not... I guess is not the focus of the, mm. of the conversation because it's the only way we're going to get better. If we go, Oh, you don't know what you're talking about. Or, no, I didn't do it. Or no, I'm not, you know, I know what I did. You don't have to tell me, see you later. Those are not helpful things to us as, uh, as individuals. So no, I would yeah. love to draw upon that. There's so much in there. There's just so much goodness in what you've just said. One thing that I definitely, I reflect positively upon working with you, Dunya, within the multidisciplinary team setting is your ability to confidently mm-hmm. uh, and respectfully, politely call stuff out, you know, and be able to, like, I really did pick up on that. And that's something that was something for me as a, as a nurse unit manager that I was like, oh, I should probably be doing more of this. But it highlighted to me that maybe I didn't have the tools to be able to do that articulately or the, that inner saboteur came back and said, hey, who do you think you are, Liam? Do you know, that's a consultant that you're about to challenge. But I think, you know, again, it comes back to developing your skill set. And especially within your, your profession as a social worker, Jenna, day in, day out, you are dealing with highly complex, challenging issues. We all are in different disciplines, but I would say some of the, most of the work that you guys do is quite confronting and mm-hmm. it kind of plays on, a, on, on people's, you know, emotional heartstrings and it, it's quite challenging. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a nurse, taking somebody to the shower isn't always emotionally provoking, you know, whereby when you sit and talk to somebody about maybe going to a residential aged care facility or what support do you have at home and they've just lost a loved one or, you know, telling them that maybe the services aren't going to cut it. All of those things are emotionally charged. How do you approach that as a social worker? I have another question that I need to remember, but how do you approach that as a social worker? Because I think that's one of the things I didn't fully appreciate about the role of social work is how much amazing work is done in that space and how you actually do it. Mm. Thank you for that. It's very observant too. I think social workers have this kind of culture or this kind of approach to their practice where they're very modest and they don't really talk too much about what social work is or how difficult things can be or just the the absolute depth of of the emotional and psychological investment we have and and bombardment of emotional and psychological stressors that that mm-hmm. um, we experience. And I just want that to stop. I want us to be able to say, we are health professionals who you won't see us necessarily physically do a lot. We do sometimes, but not necessarily do that. But we are definitely doing some really deep work and it's challenging work. It's evidence-based work. It's We are a health profession like any other in terms of its complexity and, and difficulty but a lot of it isn't as, as obvious. And I think social workers need to stop being modest. And I think it's important for us to be real and not boast because I don't think it's a boast. It's a matter of being boastful, but just be real and open about 
the, the kind of work we do because yeah then a lot of people don't end up knowing exactly what we do and when it's when you're sitting there with somebody holding their hand it doesn't look like intense work it always looks well I can sometimes see how someone would walk past a, a room where I'm with a patient and I'm holding this cute little old lady's hand and oh isn't social work just lovely just talk about feelings and it's lovely but actually we might be talking about the fact that this person was making a cup of tea in their home with the telly on in the background. They went to put boiling water into the cup when the um, kettle boiled and they tripped over. And all of a sudden they're in hospital because they have a broken hip and they're no longer able to ever return to that house again to look at it, to say goodbye to it. And what's awaiting them is a room in a facility with a bed and an armchair. And that is gonna be the rest of your days. And that is a huge change in, in, in life. First, to deal with the fact that it was unexpected, so you have shock to, to process, embarrassment to process. Secondly, that you are losing your home, the home where you lived, where your children grew up, where your grandkids come after school, and, and, and you have to go into this other place, you know, this new unknown place. And sometimes you physically can't go visit it beforehand. It's family who decide for you. And then there's also the layer of having to kind of process that my body is changing yet again and its ability is becoming less yet again. And then once you get there, you have a bed and an armchair to kind of summarise your life in a way. And obviously people make it nice and homey, but it's really confronting in the first instance. And there's so much grief and loss around that and so much in terms of empowerment that social work does. And we, we I guess... And one of the things you're taught at university as a social worker is you hold the hope for the patients. They won't always have hope that things will get better. So you hold that hope for them. And then imagine being a ward social worker and let's say there's a 30 patient, 30 bed ward and there's two of you. There are 15 people's hopes you have to hold on a daily basis, plus their family and loved ones who are also processing things in their own way. So there's a lot there to think about. And when a social worker enters a room, no notes that you read are going to prepare you for the emotional stuff that you're going to work on. This episode of the High Performance Nursing Podcast is sponsored by yours truly, Liam Caswell. If you're a nurse that's looking for coaching, whether that be CV coaching, interview coaching, writing that damn selection criteria, or maybe you're looking to take the next step in your career and you don't know where to start. Since August 2020, I've helped over 70 nurses land and achieve their dream nursing roles. Why wait any longer? You can find out more about my coaching programs at liamcaswell.com. And you ask, how do you deal with that? How do you manage that? Mm. It's practice. It's a lot of practice. And what I really, really appreciate about social work is you get trained a lot in two areas that I found helpful. One is value work. And two is reflective practice. The value work that I know that we did in our training was also around our own values. It's the first thing we addressed was what are my values? Okay, now that I've kind of worked on what my values are and what drives me as a person and what helps me judge good from bad and right from wrong, I need to then table those values and put them aside so that I can actually be a good social worker. Values do drive us and they do contribute to our what we call a personal practice framework but they also have to be put aside, maybe perhaps kind of somewhere in the periphery of our eye while we, while we work with each patient. 
because we need to be able to fully and openly be there to support this person and their life and their values. Mm. So the fact that we're able to kind of compartmentalize things, I think is really important. I think the reflective practice side is helpful because despite being able to to compartmentalize and, and shelf our values or put them in the periphery, things will affect us because we are human and things will make us angry. And there are going to be patients who upset us, who are off-putting, who make us angry, who make us really sad, who trigger personal traumas or losses or who remind us of, um, you know, your favorite uncle who passed away or, or whatever it is. So your, your, your ability to reflect on what's going on in the moment while you're with your, with your patient or your client, but also thereafter is really important. So those two things, I guess, are types of tools that we have as clinicians, as, as practitioners in our community when we're, when we're helping people. And I mean, of course, I can't speak for every social worker because we all practice differently. But yeah, that's what I personally have found helpful is I want my values to be in the room because they are part of the reason I am a social worker and I'm there. But I'm also not wanting them to be the driver of, of, my, of the kind of support that I offer that person and what the outcome for that person is. Yeah. I think that's super important though. I think I'm super, I'm very impressed that that is taught at uni mm. within a social work space. It doesn't surprise me. I, I, I would hope that it would be. But from a nursing perspective, that is certainly an area that is lacking. And I think that contributes to a disconnect between the work mm. and the individual. Mm. I think, you know, we all come into health because we want to help people. But at the same time, like what else are mm. you valuing in your relationships with your peers, your manager, your educator, your social worker, your physiotherapist, and your patient and their family? And I love that point of noting that your values are there, but they're not set in stone so much when you're interacting with patients because we have to be flexible. We have to meet people's needs and look after them holistically. And we don't place um, our values onto other people. Yeah. Absolutely not. No, you know, we can share and try and learn and grow from each other. But uh, I think that is the more people I talk to on the podcast, the more people I realize that maybe that's a missing link because mm. I didn't feel like I had that insight as a nurse unit manager or as a nurse until I was the nurse unit manager and did some of my own values work where I went, what mm-hmm. is it actually mm-hmm. that I'm willing to stand up, stand for and, and not put up with? Mm. And um, I think it's, a, it's definitely a guiding light when we are tired and when we're, you know, getting close to burnout or if it's been a long shift or you're frustrated with the patient or with the colleague. It's a really good guiding light because it's my square one. And I come back to square one. Okay, why am I actually doing this? Oh, because I really believe that this older person, older people deserve to feel safe and and deserve for their community to look after them in their old age. Mm. Okay, so then that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do one, two, and three because of that. Yeah. 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 So important. Such a good insight. I didn't think about it in that sense, but I think think it helps prevent burnout too. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Well, you're more centered and you, you understand your rationale. So why you're there, mm-hmm. um, it gives you purpose, meaning yeah. vision, and clarity. Your, and your relationship with yourself. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think it really contributes positively to that. But again, yeah. you have to be open and honest with yourself and yeah. have some pretty yeah. realistic conversations in the mm-hmm. dialogues. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like you say, it's we give, give, give. 
Mm. Uh, I think that's a common theme that maybe, you know, anybody listening that's feeling like they're on the brink of burnout, you know, we do give, give, give every day. And it's like, well, like you said, how are you refilling your cup? And what do you do for yourself so that you get to a point where you recognize that you're aware of it and you stop yourself getting to that next point and you draw upon the support network that you've created or that you have um, around you. I'm really interested to talk to you about workplace culture. We've kind of touched on it a little bit, Mm -hmm. but what do you think, drawing upon your experiences, what for you defines like a high-performing culture within a team? Mm -hmm. There's there's a few things that come to mind. Mm -hmm. One of the things is that it's really healthy to remind ourselves that we are people first and practitioners second, and that my colleague is a person first and a nurse or an occupational therapist or a doctor Mm -hmm. second even though we are in the hospital or on the ward because i'm paid and i'm there and i identify as a social worker i'm still a person first we have shifted i mean social work's been doing this for a while and it's been lovely to see that the medical model and 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 other professions are moving towards person-centered practice but person-centered practice isn't to me just about the patient, the person with the disability, the person who has cancer, the person with the mental illness. It's also about person-centered practice around the practitioner. The practitioner is a person first. You are there in a professional capacity and it's important to be professional. But to remind ourselves that actually I'm dealing with another human being who has a family and who has all their own internal things and their years of, of life experience that they bring here I think is really helpful in maintaining kindness and, and kind of uh, keeping the uh, compassion and empathy alive. So that's one of the things that I think is really key to contributing to a good positive workplace culture or healthy workplace culture, which then obviously affects performance. And the other one I think is leadership. Having leaders who, are, who see the team as a whole and but can also see the individuals in it and play to the individual strengths being able to listen to the the passion and and the strength of each each individual team member i think is really important because then we feel valued as individuals and i don't really like saying oh the nurses are like this or the ot's are like this Mm. or the social workers are like this because there are three so there are four social workers on my team and we are all chalk and cheese from each other <laughs> as as people and from our walks of life our cultural backgrounds uh use of experience as social workers our family dynamics the language we use in our case notes how we interact with our patients what demographics we prefer to work with all those things are so different and they make us different so it's really lovely to see when we have a leader who listens to that and, you know, she's sat down with every single one of us and asked, okay, what's your general area of interest? So I was like, older people who have a culturally and linguistically diverse background or from a non-English speaking background. I really like working with people who have a complex legal background. I really like working with people who identify as belonging to the LGBTI community. Mm. And those are the referrals that I then get because it's Mm. my strength and my passion. I'm going to show extra interest in that, which means I'll be even better at my job. And she's hearing it. So by hearing what this individual clinician wants, she's then also ensuring that the outcome is going to be best and most tailored to that particular Mm. client because that clinician has a, a special interest or passion about whatever the client's challenge is. Mm. So I think those two things are important, seeing the person first, um, being a person first, 
and having a, a leader who looks at you as an individual. The third thing is something that I learned through being naive for a very long time, and that is that people who have worked in the field for longer than I have, people who are older than me, and people who are in management or senior positions know better. And I looked up to them, and that is wrong. And that is the naivety that I uh, approached every workplace in my life in, and I've been disappointed so many times. And like I say now, just because you've been driving for 10 years, if you've been a bad driver, you are, you are a bad driver. <laughs> and so just because someone's done social work for 10 years longer than me, it doesn't mean that they know better. It doesn't mean that they are more developed in their skill set or have in-depth knowledge of that particular issue or, or whatnot. So I think it's really important to not make assumptions and also put pressure on people in these positions to be your leader. And that leads into the next part, which is be a role model, act mm. as a role model um, at every opportunity. And I found, you know, when we were talking about the fact that I've had to stand up to consultants or to challenge opinions of the whole team. And, you know, my clinical supervisor and I have joked about this experience that we're sometimes the only person in the room who has this opinion. And it's because mm. we're the only one who's trying to echo the patient's wish or, or whatever it is. And, and it's okay to be the only one in the room. And one of the reasons for that is because I want to be a role model and the courage I get to speak up actually comes from the patient. I literally visualize their face and me talking to them about the outcome. And I'm like, no, not good enough. So I need to keep fighting. I need mm. to keep fighting for this person. Mm. And by doing that, I know that I'm role modeling behaviors to other staff, especially staff new to the work and our new grads in, in all the disciplines that it's okay to very kindly and respectfully advocate for a patient or to advocate for a staff member who's you know, not okay at the moment and needs our support to provide clinical practice or, or whatever it is. Encouraging yourself to be the best role model you can be contributes, I think, positively to a healthy workplace culture and, and better outcomes and, and higher performance. Yeah. Mm, mm. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Do you, maybe you should write a book, Dunya. I feel like you've just like, <laughs> honestly, seriously, I, I, what you've just talked about there, you know, just, I love getting people's different perspectives on culture and how we can elevate health because mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, we can, we can get brought down a little bit and you know, some of the most trusted professions in the world, we get caught up in this, you know, you're still the doctor's handmaid and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. what I am hearing from you is that real sense of empowerment from leadership. Mm -hmm. And I just have to focus on what you said about hierarchical positions and people in power and 10 years ahead of you. I'm with you on that. I'm with you on that and, and realizing, and I think I've still got a bit of work there to do around realizing that because somebody's done it for 20 years doesn't necessarily mean that they're better. You know, it's one of those pieces of advice that I think I give myself, but I don't really follow through on. But it's powerful because mm -hmm. you you know who the good people are, you know who the people that maybe need to do a bit more work are, mm -hmm. and you it is your responsibility as a clinician in any discipline to find those people, the good people that are yeah. role modeling, that are leading courageously, that are following their curiosity, and find them and let them take you under their wing so Absolutely. that you can grow as a clinician. Mm. And also when you when you actually kind of disassemble that idea of people in senior positions or who've worked for longer being the leaders you're giving yourself the opportunity to make every person you interact with your teacher mm. and it's one of the reasons i absolutely love having students and having uh, new grads to supervise 
it is really hard work. It is so time consuming and you feel drained and you're like, thank God I only do this every second year. But at the same time, I love how much I learned from students and how much I learned from, from new grads because mm. they have this new research, which means they're getting taught different things at uni. The, their placements are in new organizations that are popping up that we don't have the opportunity to work with yet or haven't visited or whatever. Mm. So there's something new that I'm constantly learning because I see students and, and people who have had less years of experience than me as my teachers too. There is nothing about hierarchy in that sense that's helpful. And also, if we look at any any system, whether it's a political system, whether it's the operational structure, whatever system we look at, whether it's a family unit where we look at with or the monarchy or whoever it is, the best way that things work and these systems represent the community that they represent is because uh, learning and teaching comes from top down and from bottom up. Mm. It comes from the people and from the leaders kind of thing. And I don't think, yeah, I think we do ourselves a disservice if we just have this tunnel vision view of, or, or, or a specific expectation of where we're going to learn and who we're going to learn from. And mm. that comes from personal experience. I definitely mm. had that naivety, as I said. And I think that that's something that is still kind of translating into the workplace. Mm. I think there is a shift from working at that kind of senior nursing level. I think there is a shift there that's trying to have, trying to occur, whereby we are trying to empower people from the Mm. ground up to make more decisions. But of course, you know, um, what senior management don't see is the immense workload that the people on the floor are dealing with. So when you've got patient ratios of one nurse to six patients, Uh, on a busy morning shift when do they have time to sit down and think about how they can contribute to the strategic vision of the organization yeah yeah and And by the time yeah yeah yeah, and by the time they do have 15 minutes they're done yeah (laughs) they're not at lunch they're over it and you know so it's this balancing act i guess across all disciplines to Mm. to engage people from the ground up I do think there is a shift happening. I think it's mm-hmm. happening in other places a bit quicker than others, but we're certainly moving in that direction. I think so too. And I think systematically, if we, so social work is practiced from the systems perspective, meaning that every single thing that I do every day is part of some sort of system. So as a daughter, I'm part of the family system. As a healthcare worker, I'm part of the hospital system or the medical system. As someone who, you know, if I'm someone, if I was to be someone who goes to church, I'm part of the church or the religion system. So there's all these different systems that we belong to. And I feel like when we look at the wider system within which we work, like with the multidisciplinary teams, for mm. example, I look at the nurses as being colleagues, but also people I learn from. And mm. realistically, that nurse probably hasn't gone to the toilet and she's been busting to go to the toilet for four hours and she isn't going to necessarily going to be able to tick every single box of this ideal nurse or ideal health health professional but she's part of a bigger system and mm. so am i so i can assist her and she can assist me and so on and so forth and one of the things i really liked about for example working in a rehab setting was i'd find a patient in the gym but i would take their wheelchair back to their room and talk with them and then the lunch would arrive and i'd help them open up all their little containers and then i'd say to the nurse oh by the way i'm finished with them and i did this and this i hope that's okay 
and it's kind of like, oh, I'm still part of this system and I'm not really stepping on anyone's toes and I'm not stepping outside of my scope of practice. I'm not administering medications or anything. Mm. But maybe I gave that nurse, you know, 30 seconds less of, of work to do. That was no skin off my nose. Mm. So I definitely think that we're part of this bigger system and these cogs and in the reality on the ground floor, we're all tired and overworked and exhausted and want to have more holidays and see our family and just drink more water. <laughs> you know. But, I thought you were going to say wine there, but we'll oh, go with water. Wine is it works too. Yeah. Yep. But yeah, I think there is in reality, there are still little things that we can do because we see each other and ourselves as people first mm. and professionals mm. second. And likewise, from a nurse to a social worker, you know, we can divulge more information. Like we can really think about what it is you guys need from us so that we can, you know, help you guys make a, a more informed decision and, and add that extra layer. And the same rule applies, I guess, you know, I guess we all get caught up in this time narrative within the yeah, workplace where we go, absolutely. oh my goodness, we don't have enough time. But the reality is, like you say, you know, people first, but patient first as well, mm-hmm. you know, comes kind of hand in hand, staff and patients. Otherwise we don't have a system. Absolutely. And, and by putting the two of them first and making sure that we are then working really collaboratively as a group of people yeah. um, in a system, then, you know, hopefully our patients get the best outcomes possible. Absolutely. And that we feel like we've achieved, you know, what we set out to do, which is just mm. do the best for our patients. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Do absolutely doing the best for our patients and also being good to our colleagues because that actually makes our jobs easier in the long run to mm. being mm. colleagues. Yeah. We spend a bloody long time at work. That's for sure. Yeah, <laughs> As we wrap up, I, I absolutely love this conversation. <laughs> I have learned so much about you, Dunya, but I've also had a few moments of reflection where I'm like, oh, okay. Mm, yes. <laughs> that I need to think about and process myself. So I'm truly, truly grateful. I have a couple of questions left for you. Oh. I would love to know what is the kind of best piece of advice that you've been given? Mm-hmm that I am just one cog in the wheel and that I can be replaced. So go home on time and spend time with your family. Beautiful. So powerful. Head, head down, tail up while you're here. Yep. Work your ass off, do your job. That's why you're here. <laughs> but also go home on time. Yep, it's a reality, isn't it? It's mm. a reality. Absolutely. Um, 24 hours a day care from a nursing perspective. Do you know, we get caught up in that. No, I'm going to stay another hour. I need mm. to do that wound dressing. Go bloody home. Yeah, there's always, work will always wait for you. Go home. It's always going to be there. The other question I had for you is what do you need to keep unlearning and relearning? That I am just a cog and that I do need to go home. And that, you know, my personal life is just as important as my professional life. And that these vulnerable people, you know, they will, there will always be another one and you could always do more, but at some point you need to stop and go and fill the, the home cup. Mm-hmm. I think it's an ongoing thing, the life, work-life balance for us because yeah. we work with our hearts, all of us as health professionals. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. I'm, Thank you. I'm just in awe of you, Dunya. I, I really miss working with you. And if anybody ever comes across Dunya in the workplace, I tell you right now, you're not going to regret it. You are a powerhouse. You're a patient advocate. Um, you're a respectful, kind, compassionate clinician. And oh boy, did Dunya help me through some dark times in the workplace <laughs> where I was having a bad in the office with the door closed. We both love a good Brene quote. And mm-hmm. uh, Brene got us through a lot of, lot of difficult times. 
We still um, need to get our matching bracelets. WW, what is it? BB do? Oh what God. Renee Brown do? <laughs> yes. Oh my God. Why did we not talk about this? Oh, oh my goodness. What would Brene Brown do? That is, that should, yeah. If, so if you're a Brene Brown follower, ask yourself that question because you'll yeah. probably come to a really good answer. Yeah. If you're a Brene Brown follower, you know what we're talking about. If you're not, <laughs> get on that bandwagon. Yeah. WWBBD, what would yeah. Brene Brown do? You heard it here first at High Performance Nursing. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Dunya. She's a social worker, I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> she is. <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Lisa. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to the High Performance Nursing Podcast. Please rate, review and subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. I would love you to join my online community of high performance nurses. Join us on Facebook at Liam Caswell or check out my website at liamcaswell.com. Until next time, I have been your host Liam Caswell and I am truly grateful for the opportunity to help you build your high performance nursing career. Be kind to yourself and stay forever curious.